You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. And you can be seated. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to wrap up the Beatitudes today, so we'll be in verse 10. Um, while I have enjoyed um, these other men filling the pulpit for me, Nikki, Nikki, Robert, Paul, man, I have missed being able to uh, teach God's words. I'm glad to, to be able to be back with you today. Matthew chapter 5, let's pick it up in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your rewards and great your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we pause this morning and we just want to say thank you. We look back over this past week and we see the work of your hand the work of your grace in our life. For every drink of water, for every morsel of food, for an air conditioning at home, for a car, for income, for family, for friends, for sunshine and blue skies and rain, Father, over and over and over again, we see the hand, your hand, of love and grace and mercy in our life. Far be it from us to, to be ungrateful. But yet, Father, we get caught up in our schedules and the business of life. We forget. We forget to thank you. We forget to be grateful. And then, Father, on top of that, sometimes we just come to you, and the only time that we talk with you, the only time that we spend time with you is to ask you for more things. And, Father, why you invite us, why you invite us, to seek and the ask and the knock. Father, I pray that for all of us that the time we spend with you is not just asking you, but Father, that we're honoring you and worshiping you in those moments. That we're being grateful for all that you've done in our life. Father, we can spend the rest of our life thanking you for all that you've done and we'd still fall short. Father, thank you for each one of us here today. Thank you, Father, for their willingness to be here when there's so many places they could be. Thank you for those that are tuning in online this morning, and may you bless and may you move in their hearts. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully, that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts, and that we'd live differently as a result. Thank you for your word that is perfect and pure in every way. I pray, Father, that you can make this clear for us this morning. We ask all this in your name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was watching something on YouTube. It probably had something to do with fishing or hiking or building something and there was this ad that popped up and you know the deal when the, when the ad pops up you look for the little skip button well I didn't have the skip button so I had to sit there and listen to this ad before I can get on to what I want to see well this ad was for a, a medication that uh, was the medication is meant for men who are balding now if you're balding this morning I am not picking on you so don't check out on me don't get angry with me this is just an illustration to help us kind of wrap our arms around what we see Jesus teaching. So the idea was is that 
You need to go to your doctor. You need to, you need to go right now. If you are struggling with, with male pattern baldness, you need to get up from your chair now. You need to call your doctor, and you need to ask him for this medication because apparently this medication is going to give you a perfect head of hair. And so, it, and it, you know the scene, right? Some guy running on the beach, right? Some guy who's out on a date with this, like, beautiful model, and it's all because he now has hair because he took the medication, right? Well, you know how these ads go, right? They, they picture all of that. And then at the end, if you, you have to listen closely, there's this other voice that tunes in and starts running through all the side effects that might occur if you take this medicine. Well, I'm, I'm half tuned in, half tuned out, and, but this kind of got my attention. So the advertisement gets into the, the really fast-talking side effects, right? You know, they, they speed up, they speak a little quieter. Because it may be that they don't want you to really hear all the possible side effects. And I get it. Not all those side effects are going to happen. But my goodness, I heard all these. And I'm like, wow, is the, is, is the treatment worse than the problem? Listen to this. This woman said, you could have swelling in your hands and feet, diarrhea, which, you know, given hair loss, diarrhea, I guess it's a trade-off, rash, insomnia, Elevated blood pressure, dizziness, night sweats, headaches. So I'm listening to all this, and I, and I understand not everybody's going to have all those symptoms, but I'm telling you, you got to weigh this out. Is it really worth me to take the medication to deal with my baldness and have to deal with some or maybe all of these? But the, the last one really got my attention. And this one was just kind of put in right at the very end, and you had to listen closely. So not only night sweats, headaches, but here was, here was the one that really got my attention. She said, impossible hair loss. <laughs> Y'all, I'm, I'm sure you see the problem there, right? Wait a minute, I thought I was taking the medication to grow hair, but yet you're telling me that a possible side effect of the medication is a loss of hair. That doesn't seem like it's going to be very productive. You know, for some of you, when you put your faith in Jesus, it could have been that you heard a, a gospel presentation that was something like that, where it was all of the benefits of following Jesus, but you didn't really hear a whole lot about some of the hardships of what it means to follow Jesus. And, and, and you may be, maybe it wasn't long after you put your faith in Christ that, that all of a sudden trouble began to come and you began to wonder, did that did that person tell me the whole story about what it means to follow Jesus? Because I thought that if I put my faith in Jesus, if I said this prayer, if I walked this aisle, if I followed that with baptism, any number of things that you were told, that the idea was is that all of your problems were going to magically go away. You'd be amazed at how many people I've talked to through 18 years of ministry who thought that. And, and then after they experienced problems of any sort and measure, they're kind of set on their heels a little bit as to what does it really mean to follow Jesus? If it's not comfort and safety, then, then what did I sign up for? And did I sign up for all of this? I came to faith in Christ when I was 16 years old after really wrestling with it for three years straight. I grew up in a Christian home, and you know the story, in church every Sunday and Wednesday night, was right there, had our pew that we sat on. And for many years, as God began to deal with me and convict me about my sin and about following him by faith, I, I couldn't figure out why, first of all, that, that Christ would want me. Second of all, I couldn't figure out how to reconcile this whole world of church and following Jesus and what all that meant. 
So after I put my faith in Jesus, I thought the whole world was just going to embrace me and love me for my commitment to Christ and what he'd done in my life. And there was no doubt that in that moment, I was changed from the inside out, fundamentally changed, okay? I didn't understand it, didn't understand all the Bible verses, but I knew that something had changed in me. It was not a feeling, it was more than that. It was the reality that God had forgiven me of all the things that I had done wrong and and that I was no longer bound by my past, that I was a new creation in him. I didn't understand all of that at the moment. I just knew that I was different. And so I left that church that night, well, with a load lifted off of my shoulders. And I went to school the next day, my high school, with the thought that everybody else was going to be just as happy about it as I was. My family was happy about it. The people I went to church were happy about it. But boy, it didn't take long on that high school campus to realize that, that not everybody not everybody was happy. Not everybody was pleased. And for those first few weeks, I went from being elated to being confused because I had in my head that by following Jesus, all these problems were just going to go away. And in fact, what I found, and this may shock some of you, maybe some of you have not put your faith in Jesus, I want to be very clear with you this morning. The gift of salvation is absolutely completely free. But I'm going to tell you something. Following Jesus, there is a cost to following Jesus. It is not easy. For those of you who've been following Jesus for a while, you know what I'm talking about. It's not easy following Jesus. It's the best life ever, the best adventure you'll ever go on in your life. But I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. Just as Jesus said, you better count the cost because there is cost to following him. And Jesus deals with that right here in this final beatitude. And what he seems to say here seems contradictory, just as contradictory as, as the idea of a medicine that's supposed to make me, well, have a head of hair, yet brings with it some serious side effects. Following Jesus is the best life you will ever have. But let me tell you, on the backside of putting your faith in Jesus, there's some hard things that you have to go through. Jesus says here, and, and again, all the contrast that we have seen as we've heard other men speak and talk about this contrast between Jesus saying, happy are you if you mourn. That seems like an incredible contradiction, does it not? Uh, blessed or happy are those who are meek. Wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to be strong and powerful. Meek this seems the opposite of that. Blessed are those who are merciful. Wait a minute, I thought that by being powerful and holding a grudge over someone, I could control them. There's this constant contrast that Jesus is making in this, well, this preview of the rest of the sermon that's getting ready to come. And by, by no means does it get any easier as you go deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. And to me, the contrast that we have in front of us this morning is this. Happy are those who are persecuted. How? can we reconcile those two? How can we live for Jesus? The pain that comes with associating ourselves with Jesus, how can we say that that is blessed? How can we embrace that? You see, I think the problem arises when we, when we look at this idea of, of the pushback that can often come when we tell the world that we now follow Jesus. The pushback that inevitably comes with that puts us in a position where we have to make a choice. 
And the choice is, is whether I'm going to shrink back from the pressure and the, the mocking and the, the jokes that are being made about me. Am I, am I going to shrink back from that and, and then live my faith out on Sunday morning only where I come into a building like this and I raise my hand, I sing the songs, I pray the prayers, I cite the verses, but boy, just as soon as I walk out of here, I flip that off like a light switch because I'm not willing to suffer the pain that's out there. Because what's out there is hatred for what you believe. What's out there is not an embrace of Jesus, oh no. It is hatred for what you believe. Now, church, I am going to boil this all down to one simple but yet profound idea that we're going to walk through this morning. Here it is. You cannot be faithful to Jesus and be comfortable. You cannot be faithful to Jesus and be comfortable. You can't. You, you can't be obedient to Christ, and get this, and be safe. So if, if this morning your idea of, of Christian faith is something private, if, if Christian faith in you is, if being a disciple of Jesus is something that you do on Sunday, we've relegated it to Sunday morning, and, and therefore on Monday through Saturday I can live, well, in comfort, well, I just want you to know very clearly that that is not, that is not being a disciple of Jesus as the New Testament reveals. So let's take a look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, this directly assaults the idea that we have of our American Christianity, our American Christianity that says you can have both and. You can have comfort, you can have a life of ease, and yes, you can follow Jesus, just don't get too serious about that. And in other words, keep that secret, walk with the world, and then, hey, have a life full of comfort, and then one day you get to go to heaven and then you just have eternity of comfort and peace. You see, what the Bible, what the New Testament describes is something completely different. That you live your life poured out as an offering to God, which includes pain, hardship, difficulty, mocking in this life. For the next life, all that goes away. You, you live for Jesus now. You, you, you were worn out by Jesus and living for him now in the life that you've been given now for the understanding that one day all of that's going to go away and I, I live with him for all eternity in his kingdom and the beauty of that place called heaven and the new earth and all that comes with it. Now notice that the only persecution that he's talking about is the persecution that comes with living for Jesus. Notice this, he says, persecuted for what? For righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. So he's not talking about uh, some other kind of persecution that would happen as a result of you doing something else. No, he says very specifically that for righteousness' sake, living for Jesus, faithful to him, obedient to him, look, look what he says in verse 11. This is not another beatitude. This is an unpacking of the final beatitude. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you. Happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You know, I haven't seen that verse on anybody's bumper sticker yet. 
I bet, I bet none of us have a pillow at home with that knitted as our, as our favorite verse, right? You're going to be reviled. You know what that word reviled means? It means a deep hatred. It says here that, that they're going to utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They're going to lie about you. They're going to say words you didn't say. They're going to take the words you did say and they're going to twist it around. Have you experienced this on any social media lately? where you've tried to, to be faithful in following Jesus in your social media account, and all of a sudden it blows up in your face? You ever had that happen? You ever had some messages in your inbox? Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Here it is, on my account. Notice that. So Jesus, baby in Bethlehem, he grows up. He, he goes out to John the Baptist at the Jordan River. John looks at him and says, look, it's the Lamb of God. It's the Messiah. It's him. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. And yet, yet, Lord, you want me to baptize you? And Jesus says, you must do this. So Jesus is baptized. He, he begins his public ministry. But before he begins his public ministry, he goes off in the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days, 40 nights. He comes back, begins ministry all in Galilee. And what is he doing? He's helping the poor. He's healing the blind. He's, he's loving people that no one else loved. He's healing people with leprosy. John says that if all that Jesus had done had been recorded in a book, the world couldn't hold them all. Jesus healed and loved people. The very thing that the Israelites were supposed to do, the very thing that the Pharisees were supposed to do, love the widow, the orphan, Jesus is doing it perfectly, day in and day out. And you would imagine that he's going to be embraced, right? You would imagine that, that Jesus, a man who loves and teaches the way that he does, and obviously he's more than just a man. We've been waiting for him for hundreds of years. This has to be him. That's not what happened at all. The more popular that Jesus became, the more he was hated for who he was. In Mark's account of the Gospels, in Mark's account, it's in the early, I think it's in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that the religious rulers were plotting to kill him that early in his ministry. So if, if, if Jesus doing good works, Jesus healing people, yes, Jesus teaching like no one else had taught, if he's hated and reviled, if he is, if he is speaking evil against, they, they said about Jesus, they said that he was the son of the devil. If you look in John chapter 10, those chapters, things get really heated between Jesus and the Pharisees. And there's this one point where the Pharisees, the religious rulers, look at Jesus and go, Jesus, we know who you are. You are the result of infidelity among Mary, that you're an illegitimate child. They go even farther to say that, that Jesus, the only way that he could do the miracles that he's doing, the only way he could do it is not because he is God's son, it's because he is the devil with flesh on. They accuse him of being saved. They take his words and they turn them around. They, they claim that Jesus is violating the Sabbath. They'll do the same to you. Why would you think it would be any different for you? In Luke chapter 9, you don't have to turn over there, but, but Jesus encapsulates discipleship in one image that had to have burned into the minds of the disciples. He looks at them and he says, if anyone will come after me, they shall take up a cross and follow me. Well, 
for the minds of the disciples and for the ones who heard that on that day, they knew they knew exactly what Jesus meant by that. There was no confusion because every Roman province that you walked into, you had crosses of people dying in different stages of death, bodies decomposing on crosses of people who were accused of some capital crime by the Roman government. And what did they do? They hung them on a cross. Why did they do that? To make a statement to every single person walking into a Roman province that you don't mess with the Romans. They were, they were brutal. So, so in that moment, Jesus looks at his men and says, hey, you're going to take up a cross. They didn't understand that completely then. It should It absolutely shocked them. Later on, as Jesus is dying on a cross, certainly they have more questions about that. But what Jesus was saying to them and what he says to you is that you're going to take up a cross and follow him, and you're going to take upon yourself the same shame and suffering, maybe not the death on a cross literally, but the shame and the suffering connected to a cross dying publicly. Wait a minute, that... That's not what I signed up for. Well, if you put your faith in Jesus, that's what you signed up for. The idea that we're going to take up a cross and die daily as we follow Jesus faithfully. You see, this is why there is no way for you to ever reconcile comfort and faithfulness. You cannot reconcile those two. There's no way that you can live with both feet in both of those streams. As I heard as a kid growing up, maybe... This is some old school preaching. When I heard it growing up, the preachers I sat under, they, they'd say it this way, you can't straddle the fence. You ever heard that? One leg on one side, one leg on the other. You, you cannot figure out how to live comfort as the world describes it and yet be obedient to Jesus. You know why? It's because they are diametrically opposed to one another. If you're following Jesus, that means taking up a cross. So we cannot be faithful and comfortable. We cannot be obedient and safe. This idea of American Christianity that says you can have Jesus and have the world too. Why would we do that? It's because the world offers some comforts now. We have entire denominations, Christian denominations, and I'm going to use that word rather loosely at this point to get my point across. There are entire denominations that in the past were faithful to the gospel, faithful to the authority of God's word, faithful to send missionaries all over the world. But today, those same denominations are now saying, you know what, we would rather be in comfort in a right relationship with the world than to be in a right relationship with Jesus. We would rather be embraced by the world and applauded by the world rather than being devoted and obedient to Christ. So what did they do? They sold out their doctrine. They sold out their beliefs. They sold out what the Bible says clearly and truthfully. They sold it out so they could be friends with the world. But you see, it's not just denominations who've done that. It's individual Christians who've done that as well. I did it. In my 20s, I went off to the community college and I met a whole group of guys who were living a lifestyle that I thought, man, that looks like a lot of fun. So I had a choice to make. That choice was I could either live for Jesus and be a light to those guys because they're living in ways that is not honoring to what I know to be true. Or I can hide all of that on Sunday morning in a building like this and go do whatever I want to do with them, live just the way they were living, and for a while, you know, I thought I had it figured out. For a while, 
I thought that I had finally found happiness. But just as Jesus says, it leads to destruction. Not that I lost my salvation. Not that in those moments God were not, was not convicting me. He was convicting me over and over and over again. It's just I thought I had figured out. I thought I was finally the guy who figured out how to live in the world and for Christ at the same time. Enjoy life now. Live it to the fullest now. And then one day I get to go to heaven. Win-win. Some of you right now who are getting ready to go back to college. Maybe this is your first semester as a freshman. Maybe you're going back as a second year, third year, fourth year. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And listen, I'm not underestimating how hard it is to live out your faith on a, on a secular college campus. Trust me, I see what's going on. I understand that, that it's astronomically more difficult now than it was back when I was in my 20s. But the fact of the matter remains, you cannot have comfort and obedience at the same time. And in your mind right now, you're trying to figure out what that first day of college is going to look like because you have professed faith in Jesus Christ. You followed that with baptism. You belong to him. And you're trying to figure out how in the world can I keep that hidden? How in the world can I put that in a closet somewhere? Because when I get on that campus, I'm going to be faced with all kinds of worldviews. And my worldview contradicts with theirs. So I have a choice here. I'm either going to hide it or I'm going to be blessed, happy, committed to Christ not worrying about what other people think. We have this problem of, of pretend persecution, is what I call it, that, that, we, that we misunderstand what persecution is and we label it all kinds of different things. Let, let me tell you what persecution is not, not what, what Jesus is not talking about here. First of all, he's not talking about the circumstances of your own bad choices. Some years ago, I had a, had a young man who had professed faith in Jesus Christ, followed that in baptism, and... Um, began to make some really bad choices in his life, um, began to kind of revert back to some old ways of living. And because of some of those choices that he made, now he's having to face court. He's got court dates. He may go to jail. He has destroyed his testimony. He has alienated his family. He has hurt his relationships of all the people around him. And as he was talking about me, he said this. I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, he said, I don't know why I'm being persecuted like this. Well, you know me. Truth is going to reign supreme. I looked him dead and I said, brother, you ain't being persecuted. I said, you're suffering circumstances from your own stupidity. There's a difference. Don't call choices you've made in unrighteousness, don't call that persecution. It's two different things. Jesus says here, persecution is that which you incur because of an account of following me, naming me, following me, being obedient to me. School teachers, I know you've had to deal with this. That there, there's these things that's come through in the school system that you look at and you go, oh my goodness, that is in direct opposition to my faith. I, I cannot, I cannot embrace that. I cannot support that. And you wrestle with that. And you go, this, what am I going to do? I know that many of you have been very faithful. Some of you have even had to just walk away. But he's not talking about circumstances of choices that you've made in unrighteousness. He's also not talking about when we lash out at people in hate for the way they're living and we get an understandable response from that. Social media. I'm not on there anymore. But I was on there long enough to know that there are good Christian people who tried to 
maybe persuade someone of a different lifestyle, but while they were doing it and the things that they were posting, when you read it, it was angry. It was hate-filled. It was taking God's word out of context. And so when they got a response back, don't be surprised when that response is ugly. Listen, if you are acting in hate, don't be surprised when people respond harshly, but that's not persecution. Because Jesus said, persecution is on account of me. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, you'll be known by your what? Your love? So that's not persecution. You know, I've made some pretty stupid choices in my life. And I had to suffer through the circumstances of that. That's not persecution. This is not persecution. When a friend calls you up and says, hey, I need to have coffee with you. Let's, let's go out to lunch. They sit down with you, and in that conversation, that friend across from you looks at you and says, you know what? I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the way you're living right now is not honoring Christ. There's some things you need to repent of. There's some things you need to turn back from. But I, as your friend, I'm here to tell you that the way you're living is not honoring Christ. Folks, that is not persecution. What that is is a good friend. Don't call that persecution. Jesus says that persecution defined is when you're living in obedience and faithfulness to him, the results of a world that pushes back on that, that is what he's talking about. Not everything we suffer in life, not everything we go through in life is the result of being a Christ follower. Cancer, sickness, hardships, those things are not necessarily connected to our following of Jesus. But let me tell you, as we live in this culture today and where this culture is going, if you've not faced persecution because of your faith, you will. And if you're not, are we, are we trying to live out this idea of comfort and obedience? Listen to what Jesus says, verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. What is he talking about there? Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad in what? Persecution. Persecution that is the result of following him faithfully. He says, rejoice and be glad. Your rewards are great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus says, you're not alone in this. What you're facing is not something that hasn't been faced all down through the Christian life and through the Christian journey. The question that we need to wrestle with this morning is why is it that we suffer persecution? Why is it that by living faithfully for Jesus, that's not embraced? Turn over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. So John 15 places us at Jesus' the end of his life, near the end of his life. Now, at the Sermon on the Mount, this was his first basically major ministry moment of preaching the good news of the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. So that was at the very beginning of his ministry. Now I want to take you to near the end of his ministry. So Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. Jesus has washed their feet, John 13. He, he begins to teach them in the upper room, preparing them for what's about to happen. They are still wrestling with the whole idea of Jesus dying. They think Jesus is going to ascend the throne in Jerusalem. They still think that. So Jesus is working hard in this upper room to get their minds focused on what's going to be happening in the next 24 hours. I do think that Jesus and the disciples left the upper room. There's debate about that. I think they left the upper room. I think they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. I think, I know that Jesus is headed across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he's going. But I think as he walks through the city streets of Jerusalem from that upper room, I think they probably, and this is just me, I think they probably came across a grapevine, a trellis with fruit hanging on it. 
And Jesus pauses for a moment and says, guys, let me tell you about what it means to remain faithful. You've got to stay connected to me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Unless you stay connected to me, unless you abide in me, you can never bear fruit. So he unpacks that for the disciples, tells them about what it means to abide. And in, in chapter 15, uh, verses uh, 1 all the way down to verse 17, that's what he's talking about. Them remaining faithful, abiding, sticking with Jesus. But then in verse 18, the tone changes drastically. Look at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So Jesus says that he and his disciples are going to share in a common hatred. He says that if it's hating you, just know that it hated me before it hated you. Remember, the Garden of Gethsemane is just a few hours away. What's going to happen there? Jesus is praying, let this cup pass from me. But if, it's, if that's not your will, Father, then I accept the cup of, of your wrath. I accept the cross and paying the sin debt for all humanity. I accept that. And he did. Right after that, Judas is going to fulfill his betrayal. They are going to arrest Jesus in that garden. They're going to begin to beat him, curse him, spit upon him. And from that moment all the way till he breathes his last breath on the cross is nothing but hatred. As a matter of fact, you look through all of culture and all of history, you'd be hard-pressed to find a place of more hatred than you find in the latter part of the Gospels as Jesus dies for the sins of humanity. So Jesus says, look, if, if you're hated, then understand it hated me before I hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you. Man, that's powerful. It takes us back to that moment and that choice that we have every day, we, every day of our life. As a follower of Jesus, we have a choice to make every day. We're either going to seek the love of the world, to be accepted by the world, or we're going to choose to love Jesus with every fiber of our being. Those two, those two will not be embraced together. In other words, you're either going to love Jesus or you're going to love the world, but you can't reconcile the two because the two are diametrically opposed. you got to understand this. Jesus says, if, if you want the world to love you, then be of the world. And far too many Christians, far too many people who said that they're following Jesus week after week, relegate that to a Sunday morning and are not willing to be identified with Jesus on Monday morning in the cubicles in the office building. Why? Because at that moment, they would rather be loved by the world. So church is where I love Jesus. Monday's where I love the world. And I've got them both figured out. No, you don't. Listen to what Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Did you get that? In other words, Jesus is saying you're never going to reconcile comfort and faithfulness. You're never going to bring these two together. Why? Because as you identify with Christ and you don't identify with the world, the world's going to hate you. You know why the world hates you? Because the world sees you as a traitor. You are a traitor. You have left money. You have left fame. You have left power. You've left all that behind. You've surrendered your life to something greater than yourself. The world hates the one you surrender to, and it hates you for following him. 
And church, the sooner we get our arms around this, the sooner we understand that we are hated by the world because of our faith in Jesus, the happier you're going to be. Because I want to tell you something, it's a miserable life trying to figure out how to please the world and please Christ on Sunday. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted because those who are persecuted, you've made your choice. You've chose to love Jesus despite the world. You've chosen to love Jesus on that college campus in that philosophy 201 class where the guy teaching that class has said to you, if you're a Christian, you need to keep your mouth shut in this class. That's happening, folks. Folks in our church have experienced exactly that. He says, you're not of the world. I chose you out. That's why the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's not hard to understand, is it? That if you align yourself with Jesus, whom the world hates, the world is going to hate you as well. If, if the world persecuted Jesus because of who he was and what he did, can we really expect that we're not going to suffer the same thing? And I'm going to tell you something. This is a monumentous time in your faith. This will be a monumental time in your faith when you finally get to that place where you no longer care what people think about you and your faith. Oh, my goodness. I'm having, you're all struggling with me this morning. I can see it in your face. When you come to the place where you no longer care about what your coworkers think, the world, what they think of you. When, you. when you get to that place where you can finally live in freedom, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the blessed life. I don't have to worry about what someone thinks about my faith and my love for Jesus. I'm no longer worried about that. I'm not concerned about it. Now, I would be lying to you if I said to you that there's not times where that doesn't come up in my heart and I begin to think about, oh, I don't want to offend that person. And that stuff comes up. It's still there. It's in my flesh. But thankfully, I've got to this place in my life where I don't really not living my life by what other people's opinions are. Folks, it's time to grow up out of junior high school. You know how it was in junior high, right? Oh, I had to have the right shoes, and today it's all kind of, all the social media stuff and all the pressure that's on our junior high kids is incredible. But some of us have never grown up out of, out of junior high. We're still worried about what somebody down the road thinks. It's time to grow up. And understand that you'll never go to reconcile faith, faithfulness and obedience and comfort. So why do we suffer persecution? Because we share a common hatred with Jesus. We are traitors to the world. Uh, my, my dad has rental units. And uh, in those rental units, sometimes the people who rent those units are, well, they don't take care of the place. And then if they get behind on their rent, well, they can destroy the place. And so years ago, um, this one group that was just not paying rent, they finally got them evicted, got them out. We went over there into this unit. And um, it's, oh, man, it reeked. Uh, it was so bad, it smelled like garbage. And we found out that they were piling up garbage in one of the back bedrooms. And the point of this is, is that, and we're going to look at this in just a minute, where Jesus says that we're called to be light. So we're in this trailer and you can hear the roaches in the walls. I hadn't seen any of them, but you can hear them. Yeah, you just started kind of creeping, didn't you? Yeah, they're in the walls. 
So I walked down the hallway, I walked around, I could tell the smell was getting stronger, so I knew I was close to something. I reach in, turn the light on in this bedroom where they'd heaped up all this nasty garbage, and cockroaches went everywhere. When the light came on, man, they scattered thousands of them. I told Dad, I said, I think it's best we just burn this thing to the ground and move on. I mean, I, I didn't see any way out of it. You see, you being light in a dark world, often that's the kind of effect you have. Not that people run from you, it's just that the way you live, the priorities in your life are different than the way they live. And you have a moral north. There's something about you. you there's some principles in your life, and you want to live those principles out. And the world revulses that. That The world has a response against that, and it's not pretty. The second reason we, we suffer persecution is we, we share a common mission with Jesus. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he, Jesus looks at the, at the disciples, the 11 that are left, and he's already had this one conversation with them, or he's getting ready. No, he's already had it, about them being able to remember what Jesus has taught them because he's sending them on mission. He says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to comfort you. He's going he's gonna to teach you and help you to remember all things that I've taught you. But his main role is to witness to you about me, but your main role is to go out and be a witness to the world. What is a witness? A witness is someone who saw something, experienced something, and you're willing to tell that to someone else. We as disciples of Christ, we are witnesses to Christ. And he says that we are on mission together. Jesus said in the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, he says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He says, I have given you all authority. Go make disciples. Disciple them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. So we have a, a common mission. Jesus' mission when he was here upon this planet was to reveal himself to a lost and dying world as the Messiah, as God in how did they treat him? With hatred. They treated him with evil. They lied about him. Jesus now says, as he's ascended back to the Father, I'm going to indwell you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to incarnate you, and I'm going to send you out. Jesus says, you're going to be my hands and feet. You're going to go out, and you're going to be my witnesses. Do you expect that it will be any different reply to you than it was to him? No. So we need to move beyond this idea that somehow obedience to Christ is going to result in some kind of safe, easy life. Go back to Matthew, and we'll wrap it up here. I want you to see what Jesus says after he launches this sermon. So the Beatitudes are these, well, identifications of how a Christ follower lives in a lost and broken world. We understand that those Beatitudes, there's no way that in our own strength we can live them out. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit and our obedience to Christ day in and day out is how we begin to live out these Beatitudes. But notice in verse 13, Jesus immediately takes us to the mission. He's taught about what it looks like in a broken world to live for him, to walk with him, to be merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, that that. That persecution is going to come, but in that persecution, you find happiness, meaning, purpose, blessedness, 
Verse 13, here's where it's all going. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That, that verse has always messed with me a little bit. How does salt lose its saltiness? Have you ever wondered that? Well, the reality is, is it doesn't. What we know about the chemical makeup of salt, that it's a stable compound, which means it remains the same saltiness for no matter how long. So it doesn't really lose saltiness. So what is Jesus talking about here? So in their culture, as y'all know, you probably know, that salt, they didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have freezers. So what they would do is they would take their meats and they would just coat them and douse them in salt. And that salt was a preservative and it would keep the meat from rotting. And they could keep the meat longer by using lots and lots of salt. But there was a problem. The problem is, is that where they would gather salt, oftentimes they would gather other impurities with that salt, one of them being gypsum. Now, you know what gypsum is, sheetrock, right? The powder, that's, that's gypsum. So what would happen is they would gather up the salt, and instead of making sure they gathered pure salt, they would gather gypsum and salt together and actually sell it as salt. Now, here's the problem. You take what you think is 100% or 90% salt, put it on your meat, and it's mixed half and half with gypsum, what's going to happen to your meat? It's going to rot really quickly because it's not pure salt. Jesus says, you, as a disciple of his, you are the salt of the earth. Man, that's, that's odd, isn't it? The world is dying. The world is rotting. The, the world is running headlong in the darkness. You and I who are disciples of Christ, we were born into darkness, but we were reborn in the light. We were reborn, adopted by God as light. And now Jesus says, salt. What are we, what are we to do then? If we're salt and the world is decaying, what do you think we should do? We should be the salt that helps preserve those who are dying and decaying. But here's the problem. If your saltiness has been mixed with other impurities, Jesus says in the very next verse that we're useless. In other words, if you're trying to reconcile comfort and obedience, you're trying to get the world to love you while you love Jesus on Sunday, guess what that is? That's mixing gypsum in with your salt, and you are of no use to the kingdom work that he has given you to do. Did you get that? Notice what he says. He says, this saltiness that has been lost, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He's not talking about losing salvation. He's not talking about any of that. He's saying that the very purpose by which you are, that you've been given in life, in that reborn, rebirth moment, the purpose is to be salt in the world. And when you mix the world in with that, you're never going to find blessedness. So how is it that persecution, which we're not seeking it, we're not seeking martyrdom, we're not seeking people to beat us up or run us down, but simply the result of following Jesus will be people who absolutely, positively don't like you. And you've got to be okay with that. Because the answer cannot be, let me get a little bit of the world in my life so the world will embrace me. Because at that moment, Jesus says, as a disciple of his, you are worthless. 
Read on. Notice what he says next. Another analogy. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. Just like you would not put a light under a basket. The light is meant to shine forth. Your light is meant to shine forth. And it shines the brightest and the best when you're obedient and following Jesus. And only then will you find blessedness and happiness and purpose. There's a man by the name of James Calvert, Methodist missionary. And in 1838, he believes that Jesus is calling him to go to, of all places, Fiji. Now, I'm a little bit geographically challenged, so let's kind of put that in context. That is deep South Pacific. So you got like Australia, Hawaii, deeper, deeper, further in the South Pacific in the middle of nowhere, a little strip of islands. Even now, it takes days to get there flying. I had a friend who works for Samaritan's Purse who was there at one point. He said it took forever to get to that place, longest flight he's ever been on. So here it is, 1838, Methodist minister, missionary, is committed to go to Fiji. Now, at this time, and even somewhat today, Fiji is very remote, uh, at that time, certainly, the way they were living there, I'm talking like very primitive. He boards a ship. He leaves New Yorkshire, England, and, and he arrives on the island of Fiji to begin his work. Took his family with him. A bunch of other travelers went with him who were friends of his, but were not going to stay. They drop James off on this island that is huts, there's nothing there. And the people there, very primitive. So James's friends on the boat, as the boat is leaving port to go back and sail home, his friends yell out to James and his family, and they say to James, James, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. Probably not wrong. James, have you really thought this through? James, wouldn't it be more comfortable to just stay in England? James, you can serve Jesus in England. You don't have to go to Fiji. I'm sure that this missionary wrestled with all of that, but I love his answer. Listen to what he said when he replied back to those on the ship. He said, we died before we came here. Did you get that? James says, we have died to ourselves. We are no longer worried about comfort. We're no longer worried about safety. We're no longer worried. We've been set free. In other words, they are now experiencing the blessed life. Why? Because they're living in obedience to Christ. And yes, on that island in Fiji, there's going to be problems with food. There's going to be problems with sickness. There's going to be problems with medicine. But you're better off. You're better off living on mission with Jesus than to be comfortable with the world. And this morning, you have a collision that's happening in your life right now. You placed your faith in Jesus many years ago, but you're trying your very best to figure out how can I have an easy, comfortable life and not be so fanatical about this Jesus thing. Let me tell you why you're never going to reconcile that out, because you're living a lie. You're living a lie. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, 
please check out our website, hydeheart.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Heart Church.